great to be with everybody again this morning. I have to uh, begin this morning with a slight apology and one update. If you're looking at your bulletins and you see the title of today's message, go ahead and just put a line straight through that. I changed it this week. Sorry, Terry, wherever you are. I, uh, I gave you bad information. But if you want to replace that with the hope of glory, and we're still going to be looking at the same text in Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13, and again through the lens of the hope of glory. And so if you would, turn with, your, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, and I will read those verses. And six days later, Jesus brought with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three booths here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And Jesus came up to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming, and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Would you pray with me as we get started? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word and revealing to us that Jesus is the Christ. Lord, we pray that our time together would be glorifying to you and that we would be edified by your word to become more like you, that you would go before my words through your spirit to do a mighty work in all of us, that we would walk away this morning loving you more. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen. So as humans created by God, we were created to also reflect his image, having been created in his image. And we have a will. And with that will comes a number of various longings. Some of those longings are good. Some of those longings are bad. But as Christians, these longings might include things like an increase in personal righteousness or a desire for an increase in our ability to love one another and to love Christ. These longings frequently manifest themselves in the prayers that we pray, and hopefully our prayers are in line with what the Father has revealed in His Word. Unfortunately, the Lord has given us a lot of instruction on prayer and how we ought to pray. And the first thing that he encourages us and commands us to pray for after giving glory to the Father in heaven is that his kingdom would come. So if you think about the Lord's Prayer, it begins, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at that aspect of the Lord's prayer and this longing that should be in every believer's heart for our King to come. We should be longing for Jesus to come back. And it's my desire that this morning you will find joy in the fact that Jesus will one day return in glory and that this joy will produce in you hope so that you will endure the trials that we face each day, knowing that our King is coming and he will fulfill all things. And you know, the disciples weren't much different from us in that. They were also looking for a coming King. They were looking for the promise of a Savior and a Messiah whose mountain will be established as the head of the mountains and be lifted up above the hills and the peoples will stream to it and many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may instruct us from his ways and that we may walk in his paths from Micah 4. They longed for a day when Yahweh will be king over all the earth from Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 9. And then from Isaiah 61, they looked forward to the coming of one with the Spirit of the Lord who brings good news to the afflicted, binds the brokenhearted, proclaims release to captives, and the freedom to prisoners, who proclaims the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God, comforting those who mourn and who replaces mourning with rejoicing. You see, they desired a righteous kingdom, the kingdom of God to become to the earth, to bring an end of sin and every evil thing. But unfortunately, their understanding of that kingdom that was going to come was lacking. They didn't fully understand the requirements necessary to fulfill the promises that were uh, given through the Old Testament. And those uh, promises and understanding of those promises did not become clear until after the resurrection, and even more so until after the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. In chapter 16 of Matthew is a great example of this. In chapter 16, verse 16, we see that Peter declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus accepted that title for himself. He said, that is right. You understand who I am, and you can only understand that because God the Father has revealed it to you. But then Jesus went on to explain to them what that actually meant. And in chapter 16, verse 21, we read that from that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and to be killed and to be raised up on the third day. Well, that was different than what they had expected. Peter didn't think that that would actually happen. He even took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. But in his rebuke to Jesus, it revealed Peter's heart. That in Peter's heart, he was setting his mind on the things of man rather than on God's interests. And so Peter's mind was off and he lacked understanding. And so Jesus went on to help to clarify the picture of this kingdom that he was inaugurating in verses 24 through 27 of chapter 16. And we read that then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in glory with, of his Father with his angels and will then repay each one according to his deeds. Jesus had some very tough words for his disciples and for all of us who are looking for his kingdom to come. He said that they had to deny themselves. He said that they had to take up their cross. They had to die. He said that they had to lose their life and give up all of the world in order to partake in the kingdom of Christ. You see, after confessing to be the Messiah, Jesus not only told his disciples that he was going to die, but that they would have to suffer and die also to have a part in his kingdom. And again, after all of the prophecies throughout the Old Testament, you might see why they would be confused. It's hard to comprehend, and so Jesus gives them a promise that would hopefully encourage them with this bleak outlook of saying, hey, yeah, I'm the Messiah, but I'm going to go suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised again, which they weren't quite catching on to at that time. And guess what? You're going to have to do the same thing. And so that's where we have chapter 16 and verse 28, and that's the verse that will set us up for uh, our text this morning. In verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you that there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now when we look at that verse, we might start thinking, it's like, well, okay, we haven't really seen the kingdom come. Are there, are there men running around today who have like two millennia under their belt? But we don't see that. And so this verse has uh, caused concern for many throughout really the ages of the church who have been reading it. But I encourage you that it is not a very difficult verse to understand. It's really quite simple uh, because every time that this verse appears within uh, the scripture, so in Matthew and Mark and then also in Luke, it is immediately followed by the transfiguration. So that the transfiguration is very clearly the fulfillment of that, uh, that promise. And if we want to go even further, uh, an equally accurate rendering of verse 28 would read, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingly splendor. You see, the word that is translated here, kingdom, is also often used to refer to royal majesty or regal splendor. And that's exactly what Peter, James, and John see uh, when they are taken up onto the mountain with Jesus here in chapter 17. And so with the scene set, I want to actually begin to dive into the text. And as we walk through it, I want you to be thinking about kind of two things uh, in addition to the hope of glory. But one, look at all of the details that come out as we read the, this text and see how the entire scene points to Christ. And then not only that, think about how this scene was integrated into some of the other books of the Bible that we have written from John and Peter. And we'll highlight that as, as we go throughout but this scene was very, very impactful for these apostles, and it should be for us as well. So with that, let's look at verse 1. He says, And six days later, Jesus brought with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, if you happen to have Luke open right now and you're cross-referencing this, you might see that in Luke 9, Luke says in eight days this took place. Don't let that alarm you or cause any concern. Luke is merely including the days that they were actually up on the mountain when they went up there to prayer, whereas Mark and Matthew are uh, 
highlighting the days in between the promise that was given and uh, the transfiguration. But Jesus, knowing what he intended to do on the mountain, took with him the three closest disciples in order to pray. And we might ask why these three or why only three, and there could be many reasons given, but they would certainly include that it took three to be a reliable witness. If we remember back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, the law said that on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And these three were notable spokesmen of the twelve, and so they would be able to provide a reliable testimony of what Jesus revealed there on the mountain. They had frequently joined him for intense fellowship with the Father, and so it seems fitting that they would also join him in beholding his glory. However, we learned from Luke that, like they had had trouble at other points, they fell asleep. But what was about to happen in verse 2 was going to arouse them relatively quickly, and I would offer that it probably aroused us from our sleep as well. Uh, but verse 2 reads, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. I know transfigured is a word that we use in everyday vocabulary, but I'll go ahead and explain it anyway. Uh, the word transfigured uh, comes from the same word from which we get metamorphosis. If you remember back from elementary school, metamorphosis is the process that a caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly. And so there's a change that fundamentally happens to Jesus that uh, in a brilliant display of his glory, Jesus' human form is peeled back to reveal his divine glory that had otherwise been concealed. And this was the greatest confirmation to that time um, of the deity of Christ. And it should have settled any question in their mind as to who he was, and also that the things which he was telling them were true and reliable, these things about his death, his suffering, and even his resurrection. And we see that this light that is emanating out of Jesus is shining like the sun. We know that this light is the same light of the glory of God that other Old Testament prophets had beheld. It is the radiant glory of God that, is, that had caused Moses' face to reflect so brightly that he had to wear a veil in front of the people of Israel. And that same glory now radiated out from Jesus in, in some incomprehensible and indescribable way. The best way that the uh, apostles could describe what they saw was that Jesus' face shone like the sun with exceedingly white clothes. And it was a truly remarkable scene. Peter later offers some more commentary on what they saw in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. And he says that, For when he received, he being Christ, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so the glory that was shining out of Christ uh, reflects the honor and the glory of the Father. John continues building on this scene in John chapter 1, verse 14, where he says that we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this light coming out of Christ, this light from the glory of the Father, demonstrated the perfect obedience of Christ, his perfect honor, the perfect grace, perfect truth, and perfect glory. 
And as we think of this as a preview of his second coming or the return of Christ, this image of Jesus is exactly in line what we should expect. No one's going to miss it when Jesus comes back. He makes that very clear in Matthew 24, 30, saying, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. We can assume that that glory will entail this same uh, brightness and whiteness that we uh, see in the transfiguration. In Luke 17, 24, we get more details about what it'll be like when Jesus returns, saying, For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in this day. And so, just like lightning in the night, when it flashes, it can light up the outside, it can light up your house, just like it would be daylight, so will the light of the glory of God accompany Christ when he comes in power again. And even uh, more so, John continues in Revelation 1, 14 through 16, giving a description of the resurrected and glorified Christ, saying, and his head and his hair were white like white wool like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, and when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth, his face was like the sun shining in power. This was truly a glimpse at the glory that would be revealed, or that will be revealed, when Christ comes back, and that we can all look forward to seeing as well. And so on that mountain, Jesus was changed, and these three men received a glimpse and a preview of the splendor of the scene at his return. And that takes us to verse 3, because Jesus wasn't alone in this awesome event that uh, these disciples were experiencing. And verse 3 says, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And while I'd offer that this is probably not the climax of this entire, uh, entire event, it's worth camping out on this verse for a little while because it is a very, very rich text to stop and ponder. Why would Moses and Elijah appear here with Christ? And I would offer that there's three elements of Christ's return that we see in the presence of Moses and Elijah. The first is that there will be personal transfiguration as well. The second is that there's a promise of resurrection and glorification of the saints, which ties pretty closely to personal transfiguration. And then the third is that it's the fulfillment of many promises, the promises of the Old Testament. So we'll talk about each of those. First, the promise of personal transfiguration. Moses and Elijah also appeared, and Luke says that they appeared in glory. So they were reflecting the glory of God. And they display what Paul describes will come to all believers in 2 Corinthians 3, and saying, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And so with unveiled face, we behold the glory of God, and so with unveiled face means that there's no obstruction to the view of Christ. And the only way that that can take place is through personal salvation. 
when Jesus wipes away our sin and gives us his spirit. And then we behold, we gaze at with a desire to become like the glory of Christ. And the glory of Christ uh, focuses on um, his moral purity and his character. And we look at it through a mirror. It's not a perfect vision today. We don't have Jesus right in front of us, but we do have the word of God, which reflects our own sinfulness back to us, but then also points us back to Christ. And when we do these things, when we receive salvation, and when we behold the glory of God longing to become like him, and we dwell upon his moral purity and his perfect character, and we spend time in the word of God, we are changed and transformed to become more like Christ, and we lean forward to the reality of our sanctification and the glorification that will be complete when he comes back, just like we see here in Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah being present is also a promise or a remembrance of the promise of the resurrection and the glorification of saints. And as a picture of the day of his glorious return, we are called to remember that Jesus and the Father is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living from Mark 12, 27. He said that in relation to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Moses and Elijah here on the mountain, alive and well and in glory, is a reminder that that is true. And it can be a word of encouragement for each of us to know that those who have died in the faith before us, those who we love, are not dead still. They are alive and well in the spirit with God, and one day they will be alive and bodily formed, just as those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive his salvation will also participate in the life that he has for us. Jesus says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day, in John 6, 40. That's the hope that we have. Jesus is going to raise us to life again. And with this being an image or a foretaste of the, uh, the coming of Jesus in, in glory, we also see that Moses can represent those who have died in Christ and will be raised at that time. Elijah represents all of those who will be caught up together with them, having been one of the Old Testament saints who never died but was taken to heaven. And then Peter, James, and John represent all those who will be alive and remain at the time in which Jesus returns. But it goes much deeper than that, and that's why we have to talk about the promises that are fulfilled um, in Jesus' coming. See, Moses and Elijah represent the Old Testament, Moses representing the law, being the one through whom the law was given, and Elijah represents a defender of that law. Both of these in Jewish tradition and, and heritage uh, hold preeminence in their culture for Moses being the law giver and Elijah being the most preeminent prophet throughout the Old Testament. And so we think about what they might have been talking about. Unfortunately, Luke helps us out there again. In Luke 9.31, we learn that Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus about his departure, which he was about to fulfill at Jerusalem. I think it's noteworthy that in talking about his departure, referring to his death, 
that they just don't say that, oh, he's going to die and then he's going to do all these things. But no, he's going to die and he is going to fulfill something. He is going to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the law and the prophets had pointed to. Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Luke 24.44, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Or again in John 1, 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Ultimately, I quote all those to you just to say that Jesus is the Messiah and he is the fulfillment of Scripture. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises that the disciples were looking forward to, even though they couldn't understand all of the requirements necessary to fulfill those promises at that point. And the death that Jesus is speaking about is all part of his divine plan that he was unfolding. In Acts 2, 23, Peter does eventually get it after the resurrection and after the coming of the Holy Spirit. But Peter is giving a sermon and he says, this man, referring to Jesus, Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And Jesus here then is driving home the point that he had been telling them that he must go to Jerusalem. And there he would suffer, he would die, and he would rise again on the third day. And in Jesus rising again, we have the hope of our own resurrection. But being caught up in the scene, Peter had other plans. He... uh, really didn't understand what he was saying. Luke makes that clear. But Peter wanted the kingdom now. He didn't want that moment that they were in to end. And he did not want to endure the suffering that Jesus had spoken about. And he didn't want Jesus to endure that suffering that he had spoken about. And in that, he missed the point of the entire scene. Verse 4, we see Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three booths here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. See, Peter understood that that the Messiah would rule from a mountain. They were on a mountain. He also uh, understood that the only feast that we know of to be celebrated in the kingdom is the Feast of Booths. Zechariah 14, 16 says, Then it will be that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And chronologists say that this was about that same time of year that the Feast of Booths would have been celebrated. So Peter's starting to think, hey, this is it. This is the kingdom. I want to stay right here. We're on a mountain. You can rule from this mountain. I'll make some booths. We'll celebrate this feast. It'll be a glorious event. It'll be wonderful, right? Um, but in seeing their glorious form, Moses, or sorry, Peter makes a mistake, and he sets Moses and Elijah on the exact same playing field as Christ. Again, he loses perspective of what Jesus has been saying. Luke, again, makes clear that Peter was caught up in the moment and didn't realize what he is saying. But fortunately for us and for them, the confusion was about to be cleared up in a very uh, 
excuse me, memorable way. Verse 5. While he was still speaking, while Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And as marvelous as the rest of this event had been to this point, I believe that this verse is truly the climax of the entire passage. The Father arrives on the scene in a bright cloud of the Shekinah glory of the Father, that is the dwelling or the settling of the presence of God. This is the same presence of the Lord that we see with his people throughout the Exodus, and it's the same cloud that we see filling the tabernacle and also the temple, again, with the presence of the Father. And the Father directs their attention towards the point of this entire spectacle. He confirms the words of Christ and directs their attention off of Moses and Elijah to Jesus himself. Just as it will be when he returns again, Jesus is to be the center of attention at all times. They were to listen to him. We are to listen to Jesus. We are to believe him. We are to heed his words just like they were to believe and heed the words of Jesus. His words are higher than Moses and Elijah, and Moses and Elijah prophesied of Jesus' day. And it was a time for a transition to the new covenant that would be initiated in the blood of Christ. The writer of Hebrews helps us with this translation, excuse me, transition in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, saying that God, having spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through also, whom also he made the world. The Old Testament is good, and it was good for the time, and it was appropriate for the time, but now the mysteries that had not been revealed in ages past are made clear. They're made clear in Jesus and in the written word that proceeds forth from him all through the New Testament. And if we are to listen to Jesus, we must believe him in what he says, even if it means suffering for him, that is, Christ himself suffering, and suffering for you and I. We have to remember the call is to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Jesus. And each day, it'd be healthy for us to ask ourselves, how are we doing with that today? Are we willing to suffer for Christ? Are we willing to lay our life aside for him? Or are we attempting to grasp at life with everything that we've got? And if we're attempting to hold on to life with everything that we've got, and we're not willing to let it go and do whatever Christ says, we should question our salvation. But for those who listen to Christ, who heed his words and believe in him for the forgiveness of sins and for new life, who willingly submit their lives to his command, no matter what the cost might be at any point in our lives, those will save his life and will enjoy sharing in the glorious splendor of the kingdom of God at Jesus' return. All right, so let's go back to the text. God the Father had just appeared on the scene and in a blazing glory, yet veiled in a cloud, what happened? What would happen to us if God the Father appeared to us? I'd say that their response was appropriate. 
And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They fell on their faces in sheer terror. And when faced with and confronted by the holy God, there's no more appropriate reaction than this. This is the same reaction that we saw in Adam and Eve in the garden, hiding themselves. It's the same reaction of fear that we saw in Isaiah and Daniel when they were confronted uh, with the shamefulness of their own sin in light of a holy God. They remembered Jesus' words from chapter 10 in Matthew, and they feared him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But it's pretty amazing that they set up, that he sets up this terrifying event and then follows it with verses seven and eight. Because in verses seven through eight, we see a tension and we see the tension of God's holiness with his grace and his mercy as Jesus tenderly lifts them up and relieves all of their fears. Verse seven, and Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up, do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. For those of us who believe in Jesus, he is our mediator before the Father. It is because of what Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem that he was able to lift them up and to restore their countenance. He is the one who stands and is the substitute in our place as the condemned. 1 Timothy 2.5 teaches us that that for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And nobody can stand before the Father except in Christ. Romans 5.8 makes it even more clear, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Remember that the promise that Jesus gave in chapter 16, verse 21, wasn't just that he was going to die. It wasn't just that he was going to suffer, but that he was going to be raised up the third day and we also share in that hope. Now, verse 9 um, Jesus gives a command that if he wanted reliable witnesses might not seem to make sense at first. And he says that as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the son of man has risen from the dead. You see, this event should have left no doubt in the minds of Peter, James, and John of Jesus' deity, should have left no doubt in their minds of his plan of salvation and redemption. This was a gracious act of the Lord to include them, even though they didn't understand why Christ would endure the cross. They can know that his words and his actions he was about to take were right in line with the Father. But if the details of this glorious event had gotten out, they would have missed it. They would have missed the entire point. They would have thought that Jesus was here, just like Peter did, to overthrow the Romans to establish an earthly kingdom right then and there on the spot, and they would have completely missed the greater salvation that we have from sin, the greater salvation that we have from shame and death. This is the most important aspect of this command. They were unable to completely understand the transfiguration until after the resurrection. 
Now, this uh, verse I came across while I was studying for this was kind of blew me away. I never noticed it in the past. But in Luke 24, 44 through 48, we see that Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures after the resurrection. So in this, Jesus uh, is raised from the dead and he's spending time with his disciples and teaching them following the resurrection. And we read, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The transfiguration truly did inform them about everything that Jesus had done and all of the promises and everything that we've talked about up to this point, but it took the resurrection for them to understand the depth of what Christ accomplished in Jerusalem. And the disciples obeyed the Lord's command and held tightly to this experience until after the resurrection. And despite the gaps in their knowledge, the disciples recognized they had just witnessed a preview of the majesty associated with the return of Christ, and their minds rightly associated what they saw with the coming kingdom. And when the prophecies they had heard of, so much would be fulfilled. And in that, they asked a very practical question. And that takes us to verse 10. The disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? You see, they remembered the prophecies. They remembered the prophetic words that were the last words up until the time of Christ and the uh, coming of John the Baptist of Malachi chapter 4. said, Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And so they started asking, okay, if this is going to happen, if you're truly the king, if you are truly the Messiah, where is Elijah? Well, we saw him for a moment, but he just went away. Why didn't he make a public appearance? And with this in mind, Jesus kindly explains to them uh, that this was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Verses 11 through 13. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So Jesus had explained that it was John the Baptist. And for us, we have from Luke the prophecy of the angel, speaking of John the Baptist, saying in Luke 1, 17, And he will go forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy from Malachi chapter 4. So their thoughts were correct in this point, but Jesus confirmed that Elijah had come through John the Baptist if they had received him. But just as the nation had rejected John the Baptist and had done to him whatever they wished, just as the nation had killed John the Baptist, so also would the Messiah be rejected. Hence, 
his words that he would go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, and yet rise again. And so in the minds of Peter, James, and John, their first reaction to all of this, the first impact that they had was that of confusion and terror and more confusion as to what all of this meant. But the lasting impact was quite remarkable, and it, and it never left them. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, it's just a quick glimpse of everything that had happened on the mountain there at the time of the transfiguration, set as the bedrock for the rest of the gospel, confirming who Jesus was. In John chapter 1, we see that he's speaking of Jesus, and he identifies Jesus as God, even referring to him as the Word who is with God, and the Word was God. He talks about him being the light that shines in the darkness, and darkness not overtaking it. And then he goes on and talks about the witness of John the Baptist. And in verse 14, he says that the Word became flesh, so God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John's entire purpose of writing this gospel was so that people would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and he begins with what he had learned on that mountain and sets the stage for everything else um, throughout the rest of that gospel. And so that impact to remember is that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Peter also took from this experience and the, the bleak outlook that they had of the sufferings that Jesus was to endure and also the sufferings that they would endure as apostles and disciples of Christ and that all who follow after Christ would endure later and that we've been talking about in Sunday school for the past month or so, uh, that the hope or that we can endure suffering now in the hope of glory to come. And Peter makes that very plain in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is real suffering today. It is hard to follow Christ. It is hard to believe, but it's worth it. We can endure suffering now because of the hope of glory. And in the bleakness of that moment when they were, all of their hopes were about to be crushed, that this man who they've been following for three years was about to go die. And he was saying that, hey, everything that you think is going to happen isn't going to happen the way that you want it to happen, and in fact, it's going to be much harder. And then he gives them this, uh, not vision, but this experience on the mountain just to be a little taste of grace to say, hey, I'm coming back. I will reign in glory. You will share in the glory that I have, just like Moses and Elijah are now. And so we also, with that hope of in glory, when Christ returns, can endure the suffering of each day. And I offer uh, one more parting application that Peter lays out in direct um, relation to what we've been talking about this morning in the Transfiguration. In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, 
Peter explains how we should view experiences. And here, in verse 16, he says, For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain, that we have as more sure the prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Of all of the experiences that anybody could ever have, I'd offer that the experience that Peter, James, and John had on that mountain was better. And yet, they still said that better than that experience is the word of God that we have today. And so I encourage everybody here that if you are one who likes to draw on experience, go back to the word. Experiences were clearly helpful for them, but it is not the end-all, be-all. It is not where we gain truth. And if anybody comes to you with an experience that is other than the word of God, run from it, expose it, because it's not from the Lord. We're in a culture today where experience is everything. Don't allow experiences to rule your life, but allow the word of God to penetrate your life and to teach you the truth and to know who Jesus is, that he is the God, that he is the Messiah, and that suffering is going to be here and now, that you're not going to have your best life now, that that is a lie. But we can endure suffering now because of the hope of glory. The best life is yet to come for those who believe in Jesus Christ, who listen to him, and who heed his word. The scripture is more sure than any experience. Jesus is coming back. We should eagerly await him and eagerly pray for that return with the hope of glory. So with that, would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for sending your son to stand in our place. We thank you so much for the hope of glory We thank you for your word, which teaches us of that truth and that constantly points us back to Christ. Father, we pray that Christ would be the focal point of our lives in every way, that you would expose false teaching to each of us because we know your word. Lord, I pray that we would enjoy your word and we would enjoy you through it We would long for your return, and we pray that you would come quickly, that you would set things right, that we could dwell with you in your everlasting kingdom that would never end. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our God, and our King.